Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. In 2016 alone, more than 63,000 people in the U.S. died of drug overdoses a number that's more than tripled the amount of fatal overdoses from 2000. Like many cities, Philadelphia has experienced this growth firsthand, with fatal drug overdoses in the city doubling in just four years, from 459 deaths in 2013 to 907 by 2016. Last year, the city projected that fatalities in 2017 would reach 1,200, far outpacing other large cities like Chicago and New York. Here today to talk with us about how the city has implemented a comprehensive and coordinated plan to reduce opioid use through the mayor's task force and comprehensive user engagement is the commissioner of Philadelphia's Department of Health, Dr. Thomas Farley. So, Dr. Farley, welcome. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Okay. So let's start off by tell us just a little bit about what drew you personally into this battle, into the opioid epidemic. Well, I'm the health commissioner for the city, uh, and I view that to mean that I'm the city's doctor. Uh, and any a big health problem is something that I need to address. And uh, I look at things that are killing a lot of people in Philadelphia, and the opioid crisis caused this big spike in deaths that you mentioned. And so although the health department here has not worked on um, substance use issues at all in the past, uh, we realized that we needed to respond. And so um, we responded with it. There's a a partner agency, a sister agency, that uh, is responsible for substance use treatment. Uh, But this is uh, something much larger than just providing treatment for people. So we participated in uh, trying to develop a more comprehensive response for the city. So how long did it take? Well, let me, before I get into development of the plan, how bad did it get? Can you describe it in a little, other than the loss of life, any other aspects of it that you can kind of describe to help us visualize this? Well, uh, for starters, those numbers really are shocking. Uh, You said that we estimate about 1,200 deaths in uh, 2017. But that in perspective, Philadelphia was hit very hard uh, in the AIDS epidemic days uh, and in the, in the peak year of the AIDS epidemic in 1994, we had 935 deaths. So we have far surpassed the worst of the AIDS epidemic here in Philadelphia, even though AIDS hit us very hard. Another comparison is that the total number of people from Philadelphia who died in the entire Vietnam War uh, was 620. Uh, so we lost almost twice that in a single year here. So that uh, that number uh, stood out for me, uh, but this crisis is big enough that you can see it in other ways. Um, just walking around the city, you see an awful lot of people who are addicted um, to heroin for the most part. Um, wandering around, you see people passed out on the street. 
Um, and the homelessness problem uh, has clearly gotten worse, uh, all driven by this. And then we tried to, we, we recognized that that was the, uh, the deaths and the homelessness problem was the tip uh, of an iceberg. And so we tried to understand how big the iceberg was. And so we did a survey of the general population of Philadelphia uh, and asked them, uh, have they received a prescription for opioids in the past 12 months, um, and were they currently taking opioids in the past seven days? Um, and we got about a third of adults in Philadelphia said they've gotten a prescription for opioids in the last year, and um, a total of uh, it was about one in seven, or a total of 168,000 people in the city were currently taking opioids, uh, which was shocking to me. So uh, we are, uh, you know, inundated with opioids here and pills, and uh, some of those people are then graduating to uh, to heroin, uh, and uh, and it's you know it's a just enormous citywide crisis. So you wrote an article, kind of underscoring the source of this epidemic in your city, and it was titled "Philly Health Commissioner: We Physicians Are Today's Gateway Drug Dealers." and it profiled the culpability of physicians as part of the opioid crisis. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, that was a, an op-ed to try to really uh, shake up uh, physicians and, and have them recognize the role that they played in all this. Uh, those, in our survey, um, we asked people how, if they were taking opioids currently, but then said, where'd you get them from? And um, the overwhelming majority were getting them from their own physician. Uh, so as much as people have focused on a criminal diversion or street sales or children finding pills in their parents' medicine cabinets, the main source of opioids is doctors. Uh, now, I think those doctors have been um, egged on uh, in a very strong way over decades by the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, so they, they, uh, the pharmaceutical companies really are uh, have a lot of blame here as well, and the city has sued the pharmaceutical companies for their deceptive marketing practices as they marketed these drugs to doctors. Um, but doctors have a role, too, and doctors uh, have a role in the solution. And, and so uh, we, that article is meant to try to draw attention to uh, the doctors playing that role in solving the problem. Was it effective, doctor? Uh, well, if, if you look at the graph of prescribing of op or sales of opioids in Philadelphia, you see it, it rose steadily from 2000 to 2012, and it's been going down to 2012, but it's still at historically very high levels. So we're making progress, but we need to make a lot more progress if we don't want to have so many people become addicted in the first place. Now let's talk a little bit more about the, and get into the details of the comprehensive plan. So when did you begin developing that plan? Well, we started talking about it in the fall of 2016. Um, I just came into this position in the winter of 2016. And uh, the, um, the mayor appointed a task force of some 20 members um, that started in a uh, meeting in January 2017. And there were subcommittees formed, and in total there were probably 150 people, uh, experts and people affected by the epidemic from all walks of life and expertise, um, and that worked for about five months and came up with a plan that had um, 18 recommendations. Um, in the area of prevention and education, treatment, um, overdose prevention and harm reduction, um, and involvement of the criminal justice system. So 150 people come up with a plan in five months. That, uh, how did you manage that many people to come up with a comprehensive plan? That's, uh, that would be tough. 
Uh, it, we were real uh, taskmasters. Uh, we, you know, these uh, subcommittees were told, okay, you have uh, every subcommittee met every two weeks, and they had two meetings to come up with a first cut of recommendations, and then those went to the larger committee, and then went back. And so it was an enormous amount of work, very intense, um, but I think very satisfying. And as far as us coming up with uh, a group of recommendations that together um, should make a difference. So let's go through those recommendations. I believe there were 18 of them, right? Right. Can you walk us through? Uh, well, the, I won't go through all 18, but just say, in, uh, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, mm -hmm. And let's start with um, prevention and education. Uh, there's a recommendation to conduct a consumer-directed media campaign about opioid risks. Um, you know, we, um, as I said, we're reaching out to doctors to get them to prescribe less. One of the things the doctors are saying is that, well, these patients want these pills and they come in demanding these pills. Uh, and so we wanted to have consumers also to have uh, uh, be concerned and, and worried and scared about the risk of these pills. And so um, we have um, run a media campaign here on television that, um, that warns people about uh, these risks and um, uh, with testimonials from people whose lives have been uh, upended or who have lost loved ones from opioids. Uh, so that's recommendation number one. Okay. There are other recommendations about um, how to try to prevent people from becoming addicted in the first place, uh, and that deals a lot with the healthcare system. Um, in, in the area of treatment, um, there were recommendations on how we needed to uh, greatly expanded, expand medication-assisted treatment. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, enthusiasm here for drug-free treatment, but there's strong evidence that uh, medication-assisted treatment with methadone or buprenorphine, also called Suboxone, is far more effective than drug-free treatment, for, uh, and so we want to expand the use of that. Um, there's a recommendation for um, creating what we call warm handoffs, for when someone has had a non-fatal overdose and they come to a hospital emergency department, try to get them quickly into treatment so that they uh, don't go out and use again and uh, overdose again. How does that work? Can you go into a little bit more detail on that? That sounds a little bit like the Anchor ED program that, uh, that is out there, which is engaging a, a recovery coach right there in the ED. And before people leave that have overdosed, they get engaged with that recovery coach. Uh, and that's exactly the idea here is we have a team of um, peers, people who have uh, had drug problems in the past and are now in recovery, uh, who are assigned to our hospital emergency department to engage people who have had a non-fatal overdose. And although they can't walk them into treatment that day, they can certainly encourage them to get into treatment and help facilitate that. It's a new uh, program, uh, so um, I can't tell you much about how widely it's uh, being implemented yet or with results, but that was one of the recommendations and it is, is definitely happening. Another thing in your plan is the low barrier housing options that do not require sobriety providing that for uh, for these people that are struggling with substance use disorder. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, we think, very important. We, we definitely have a big uh, and expanding homelessness problem. Uh, I was out just uh, the other night during the annual night when people go out and count the number of homeless people in the street and um, had a chance to talk to some of the folks who were sleeping under a bridge uh, when it was 25 degrees out. Um, and it was very clear that heroin had taken over their lives, uh, that they, um, everything was secondary to that. So they had no money, they were begging for food, uh, they were sleeping on the street. 
And so they would be willing to and, and would prefer to be inside and where it's warm and dry, uh, but they needed to be, uh, if it was dependent on them uh, stopping to use drugs first, they wouldn't go. Uh, so we needed to have some way to get people in and out of the cold. Um, and experience has been that if you get people to do that, then they can sort of uh, take a breath and look around and start to think, well, how do I want to do, deal with the rest of my life? And then they're willing to consider going into treatment. And so getting them into housing first is the, the basic approach. Okay. So also a big part of this program, uh, this program known as CUES, are medical interventions. Yeah, so um, there was a recommendation in the uh, overall task force report that the city explore what we're calling comprehensive user engagement sites. Uh, those would be sites where um, people who are injecting drug users could go in and um, get outside of the cold and during the daytime and um, engage with staff who would talk to them, help them get into treatment, but also where they could use drugs under supervision um, so that they, if they had an overdose, they could have that overdose reversed by Narcan and they at least wouldn't die. Uh, and this is a topic that makes um, some people uncomfortable. I understand why it would make people uncomfortable, but, but the number of people that are dying, the, uh, the, the committee felt it was important to at least explore this uh, possibility uh, in a similar way for, uh, with the housing. Is that this is a way of engaging people, uh, and as the first step that we ultimately hope will get them into treatment, and it keeps them alive long enough to get into treatment. How and long have so okay. in the wake of that report, then we did much further investigation about whether uh, accused would be appropriate for Philly. And what did you conclude? Well, um, we we did a, a couple of things to explore that. One, we uh, commissioned a, um, a review of the scientific literature on supervised consumption facilities around the world, um, and that review found that uh, they save lives. Um, they uh, that's been found consistently. They re reduce um, um, fatal overdoses, despite the fact that there are many non-fatal overdoses. Um, and, uh, and they have uh, benefits to the neighborhood as well. Uh, fewer needles that are littered on the ground, uh, fewer people who are seen injecting uh, in public, uh, which makes sense because people are inside when they're injecting rather than out on the street. Um, and they also prevent infectious diseases like HIV and hepatitis C because people are using uh, clean equipment. Um, and then we went and uh, an entire delegation of city officials went to Vancouver and we observed a uh, supervised consumption facility there. Insane. It's been open for more than 10 years, mm -hmm. has dealt with probably thousands of drug overdoses during that time, has not had a single death. Uh, and so, uh, and, and it was widely embraced by city officials there. So uh, we felt based upon the evidence uh, and the visit that this is something which uh, we think Philly can benefit from and, and would help us among the many other things we're doing. So when was that implemented? Well, we have just announced as of uh, a couple of weeks ago that we want to create a uh, comprehensive user engagement site. Okay. Now we have to uh, go through many steps to actually have one up and, and functioning. Um, and those steps involve finding an organization to run it, uh, getting funding to support that, finding a location, engaging with a variety of stakeholders to, about how it's going to operate. So we still have a lot of work ahead of us. All we've announced so far is that this is something we feel is appropriate and we, we want to set up. Is there any legal issues that you'll have to deal with along the way to make that happen in your community? Well, you know, there are laws on the books at the federal and state level that um, are certainly are problematic. 
uh, our view is that those laws uh, were not written to prevent a doctor like me from having people die. Uh, and, and, uh, and so we are hopeful that uh, officials, um, uh, whatever levels, will see these facilities for what they are as something to save lives in the time of an absolute crisis and that those laws will not um, come into uh, be a problem for us. I should say it was a very similar conversation that we were having um, back in the 1980s and 1990s about syringe exchange, where um, we, people felt that to prevent the spread of HIV AIDS, we should be giving drug users sterile uh, syringes uh, so that when they inject, they weren't spreading HIV amongst themselves and not spreading in the community. It was very controversial at the time. Um, and, and there were laws in the books that said you can't sell or give uh, drug paraphernalia. Um, nonetheless, we have um, syringe exchange programs in Philadelphia and uh, all over this country uh, that are operating, even with those laws in the books. And they're um, probably the biggest success in the history of the AIDS epidemic. Uh, the number of uh, new HIV infections among uh, injecting drug uses in Philadelphia has dropped by more than 90%. Um, we, just, we just get much, much less spread through needles as a result of that. So that's not a bad model here. Now, some communities in the United States uh, that have looked at the SIFs and considered doing some type of a safe injection site in their, uh, in their community have implemented, I'll say, a, 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 a program whereby it's kind of a step a little in between not doing one and a full-blown SIF. It is in one case in Boston. It's, they have a bunch of uh, lazy boys that are in a room. It's called SPOT is their program. About 12, 12 lazy boys in a facility, and they've got medical people around. And so it's post-use. People walk in post-use, and they have a place where they're safe and they're monitored. Um, that's one program. Another program is um, that actually we just learned about on CNN is in New York where they monitor the bathrooms. So they know that the, in this drop-in that the bathrooms are going to be used and they just make sure that the people are safe. Had you thought about something like that in your community? I'm sure you're aware of those. You know, I've heard about these sorts of things. I don't know the details about how they operate. I think each community that's affected by this crisis, and there are many all across the country, is trying uh, uh, somewhat different things. And I think we'll all learn from each other about what appear to be uh, effective and something you can operate at and can be brought to big enough scale that they really are saving significant number of lives and, and putting a dent in those horrible statistics. So, um, you know, we're, that's not something that we're headed towards right now, but, uh, you know, uh, we're going to continue to be uh, in contact and, and learn uh, from other folks. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about some of those other points in the plan, if we could there, Doctor. Sure. Um, there's um, a uh, within the overdose prevention area. There's uh, recommendations about um, expanding naloxone availability, and then in the prevention education um, area, there's there's a recommendation around a public education campaign about naloxone. So we have um, purchased and are distributing something like 35,000 doses of naloxone in the past six months. Uh, we're trying to flood the zone uh, to where uh, ultimately, I have a goal that whenever someone uh, has an overdose, if there is, uh, if there are other people nearby, that at least one of those other people has naloxone with him or her. Um, and then uh, we will be uh, 
running a media campaign starting in oh, about a month that um, says something to the effect of uh, saving a life can be this easy, and it just demonstrates how you can spray naloxone in the nose and uh, and prevent someone from dying. Because we know people want to be heroes. This is a chance to be a hero. Uh, so we think that that combination of this widespread distribution of naloxone and the media messaging will provide opportunities for people all across the city and not just at one fixed site to uh, to be able to uh, address overdoses that so they don't become fatal overdoses. So how many different organizations are participating in uh, the group that created this plan? You know, I never counted it as far as organization. Uh, I would certainly say, you know, a couple of dozen at a minimum. You know, we had um, governmental agencies, including the chief of police, the director of the state of the city uh, jail system, uh, obviously the, the um, agency that does drug treatment, myself, uh, so many other city officials. Then we had a large number of nonprofit organizations represented. We had academic experts. Um, we had um, other people involved in the community, parents who lost uh, children or loved ones, people who were in recovery. Um, so it really was a very um, broad-based uh, involvement. And, and everyone was quite eager to participate. And, and I was actually surprised at how quickly people came to consensus about what we ought to do. Um, and, and that really has helped. Uh, there wasn't a lot of dissension in the overall recommendations. So for the safe injection site or the comprehensive user engagement sites, um, looking down the road, how soon would you expect that you might have something up and rolling? You know, it's hard to predict uh, because, again, we're just beginning the process. Um, and uh, so what we've been saying is sometime between 6 and 18 months. Uh, it's it, it's going to take some period of time um, because community involvement is definitely a part of this. Uh, there, a lot of people are going to want to have their say. This will be a certain amount of controversy. There's a lot of education that needs to be done. Um, and then there are the whole operational aspects of it, and as well as uh, the fundraising. Uh, so it's not a simple thing, um, but um, you know, we're, now we're, we're working as fast as we can on it. So what else would you cite as a program of note that you're doing in, there, in your community that really stands out in your mind as being unique, one of a kind, that you've done there? I don't know other cities well enough to know what's happening elsewhere, so I, I can't speak to things being unique. I can't speak to things which I'm um, excited about um, as part of our solution. Uh, one would be, for example, what's happening in the city jail system. Uh, before we uh, had this process in place, uh, if people were arrested and they were already on methadone, then they would be given um, medication-assisted treatment while they're in the jail. Uh, but anybody else wouldn't. Uh, and now what's happening is everybody who comes in is assessed to see if they are an opioid user. Um, they, uh, it's starting just about now where they all will be offered buprenorphine while they're in the jail. Um, and then anybody who reports opioid use uh, upon release will be given naloxone uh, so that he can uh, use that against with, with anybody he's with if they overdose or uh, um, someone he's with could use it on him if this person overdoses. And um, and we are working on having a much smoother transition into um, uh, continued buprenorphine treatment on release as well. Uh, there are thousands of people who cycle through the jail every year who are opioid users. So. This is a, a real opportunity to reach an awful lot of people who we haven't reached before. Yeah, that's a tremendous opportunity. And otherwise, it's not a pretty sight when they go in and there's no help for them. 
one other thing I'll uh, mention, and this is completely on the other end of the problem, and that is um, again, we feel that the increase in opioid use over the last um, couple of decades is driven in large part by physician prescribing, egged down by pharmaceutical companies. Um, and But most of that um, prescriptions are paid for by health insurance. And so health insurance plans have an opportunity here to try to reduce the overprescribing. And so we have been working with health plans to have them put in place uh, prior authorization policies uh, where doctors can prescribe um, within certain limits, um, but if they try to prescribe outside of those limits, uh, they need to get prior authorization from the health plan or that prescription won't be paid for. Uh, and that um, quickly changes doctors' practices because they don't want the hassle of having to call the health plan each time. So that if a doctor is writing for 30 days of opioids uh, after a minor surgical procedure, um, that prescription is not going to be reimbursed, and so the doctor is going to find out in a hurry that that's not appropriate. Uh, so uh, we have the biggest health plan in the city has implemented these prior authorization standards. That's our Blue Cross plan. Uh, and other plans are implementing uh, similar ones, and it's going to be more consistent um, over the next few months. So what would you cite as a real success story uh, in your community there with the work that you've done? You know, I'd love to say that uh, um, we've seen success. Right now, I, I think we're still in the stage where things are going to get worse before they get better. You know, the number of people who are dependent on these drugs is huge. Um, I do feel very good about the process, though, and the recommendations that we've got. Um, I think we're we're taking on the what the primary cause in the first place, which is the overprescribing. Um, I think we are making treatment more available to people. We're little by little making it easier for people to access treatment. Um, we are. Uh, getting more antidote out there to uh, to prevent people from dying until they can get into treatment. Um, and we are uh, using our criminal justice system to help people uh, with opioids. All that's happening right now, but it's really too early to measure its success. Uh, so uh, I'm excited we have a comprehensive plan that we have such broad-based support for. Uh, but now, um, you know, hoping we start to see a turnaround in some of these awful statistics um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping it soon, but I, I'm, I fear that things are going to get worse before they get better. Well, Doctor, I want to thank you for spending your time with us this afternoon, this Friday afternoon on a, uh, uh, well, a week which been, has been historic in your city, uh, celebrating your first Super Bowl championship. Um, so what final words would you have for our listeners? Well, this, uh, this crisis is, is a national crisis. It's uh, in some uh, places worse than others, but everybody is experiencing this. And, uh, and there is no one single solution. It's tempting to say, well, we, if we can only do this one thing, uh, we will solve this crisis. Um, and there is no one thing that will solve it. It takes a comprehensive approach, uh, prevention, treatment, overdose prevention, um, and it takes all sectors working together. Uh, and so um, I'm pleased we got this happen here. I think that needs to happen in other communities, and we need to have a similar strategic um, approach at uh, the state level, the federal level. And and it'll take some funding. Uh, this is not going to happen. Um, we're not going to solve this problem uh, with no cost. Um, ultimately, we can turn this around, but it's going to take a lot of effort and some money over years. 
We've been visiting today with Dr. Tom Farley, the Commissioner of the Philadelphia Department of Health, who's helped illuminate how cities can take an active role in combating this epidemic through harm reduction programs. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.